Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in Numbers 19 and 20. Um, after doing a little bit of review with what's going on with Numbers, this is the fourth book of your Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And Numbers is a very unique book in the history that it records. Um, but we're doing this once a month through the year, teaching through the entire book of Numbers. And one of the reasons why I've been teaching through Numbers once a month is because of something Jesus said that I think helps us understand the value of the Old Testament and why the Old Testament should matter to us and why we should read the Old Testament, learn from the Old Testament, even though we are no longer under the law of Moses. In John 24, when Jesus had risen from the dead, to his disciples, he would talk with them and teach them, again, after he had risen from the dead, and he would explain to them how all things in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, were all about him. And that's an invitation to go back and to wrestle with the things that can be very confusing, disorienting, and at least to realize that all of these things that came before Jesus ultimately are pointing to Jesus. To say it another way, one of the grand purposes of the Old Testament, again, everything before Jesus, is that it illustrates, it enhances, and it enforces New Testament truths. And oftentimes when writers like the Apostle Paul would be teaching spiritual lessons about maybe more intangible things with faith, they would pull in illustrations from the Old Testament to enhance their point or enforce their point. And so you were able to understand more deeply maybe the richness or just the reality of what was being said because of how the Old Testament serves to, in the most grand and important ways, illustrate things that now we follow in Jesus and his apostles. So in studying these things, it's not that we're under the law of Moses, it's that these things are illustrating lessons for us that we can learn and apply, even being under the new covenant, right? So Numbers. Um, about a year before the book of Numbers begins, God had delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, about a year before. And they arrive after Egypt, so they escape Egypt, God delivers them, about a month and a half, so it's probably from your view this direction. So God delivers them from Egypt a month and a half. They arrive at Mount Sinai. They stay at Mount Sinai for about a year. And when the book of Numbers begins, they're actually still at Mount Sinai, the foot of the mountain where they receive their law, their covenant with God. And they don't actually leave Mount Sinai to go to the promised land until Numbers chapter 10. So 10 chapters... Well, nine and a half, it's not really the whole, it's middle chapter 10 that they actually leave. Um, but it's after a year at Mount Sinai, Numbers chapter 10, they leave. They get to the border of the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. They refuse to go in because they're intimidated by the strength of the people who live in Canaan. And they did not believe that God would provide the strength for them to conquer their enemies. And so God then sentences them to 40 years in total just wandering through the wilderness so that it would be the next generation that would then go into that land. We see that in the book of Joshua, two books after the book of Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. 
Um, there's not many stories, actually, about the wilderness wandering. You'd think that, you know, the book of Numbers is 36 chapters. It's, it's a very large book. But actually, Numbers chapter 20, Numbers 33, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. Numbers 33 records that it's the 40th year when the events of chapter 20 happen. So chapter 13 through 15 is when they're first getting to the border. Then really you have one story the rebellion of Korah that we talked about last month, and then some law sections, and then they're at the 40th year. So we actually have very, very, very little <laughs> about the 40 years, and literally from Numbers 20 all the way to the beginning of the book of Joshua is just a matter of a few months. So time slows way down from Numbers chapter 20. You have 16 more chapters in Numbers. You have all the book of Deuteronomy, and then you've got the beginning of Joshua. So again, time, time slows way down after it just zooms forward. Now, I've titled this lesson, God's Holiness and Water. Numbers chapter 19, God is providing water that is going to be for like ritual ceremonial cleansing. Um, we'll talk about that when we get into more detail, chapter 19. And then chapter 20, the people are thirsty, they complain. You know, just like the scripture reading, well, God must be bringing us out here to kill us. Why are we wasting our time? Why aren't we dead yet? And then God, obviously, he provides water for them. Both of these instances, both in the law of chapter 19 and in the narrative of chapter 20, we're actually going to be learning about God's holiness. And so God is providing water, but ultimately it's teaching us about God's holiness and the principles of God's holiness transcend just being an old covenant thing. That is something that is just inherent with God's character and who we need to be in response to his character. So just a reminder that this is kind of probably accurately what Israel would have looked like in the wilderness. They were organized by tribes. There were 12 tribes. Then you had the Levites. Um, one of the tribes was split in two, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So anyway, you've got 12 tribes, three on each side with a tabernacle in the center. It's a tent that Israel built that would symbolize God dwelling among his people, walking with them in the wilderness. That's at the center the tribe of Levi, who would serve the people to teach them about God's law, receive the animal sacrifices, they would be in the center, and they would kind of move as a very organized unit that would look like a military unit as they worked through it. And so Numbers 19, this would be a very relevant law because of its purpose. And I want to start here. So the way that I've outlined this chapter, hopefully we're going to summarize some things of this chapter, but I hope this at least gives you an idea of what's going on here. Basically, verses 1 through 10, you get the preparation for this water that, again, is for ritual purifying. You get the preparation. 11 through 16, you get the purpose. We will read that section just so we kind of understand what's going on. 17 through 19, you get the procedure. So how do you apply this? What, this, what does this look like when someone needs it? And then 20 through 22 is the priority. So like, why is this such an important thing? Let's read verses 11 through 16. Rather, 11 through 13, just to kind of see what's the purpose of this, what's going on here. Numbers 19, uh, 11 through 13. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Now, stop there really quick. <laughs> to be unclean in the law meant you had to like social distance. It was kind of like you had to go outside of the camp, separate yourself. There were different time frames that that would be required for. Sometimes it was mainly until evening, sunset, then you'd be clean again after washing yourself. 
Um, but for this particular law, if you touch a dead body or a bone from a human corpse, you have to distance yourself for a full seven days. So verse 12. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles, notice this, not himself as much as the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean and his uncleanness is still on him. This would be really relevant to the congregation in the wilderness. So the numbered men from 20 years old and upward who could go out to war was 603,550. That's men 20 years old and upward who were fit for battle. So if you're going to estimate, well, how many people then in total would be within Israel? At that point, it's maybe two to three million. Because now we have men younger than 20, the elderly who are not fit for battle, uh, children, women. At that point, again, you may have upwards to 2 to 3 million individuals. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, that entire generation, all of them who were numbered, were going to die. What that means is a little over 100 people every day on average were going to die. Uh, generally about six people per hour were going to die. And if you're going to be contaminated in some, you know, ceremonial sense, and I want to be careful how I say this, because in relation to God's holiness, it's not just a ritual. There's, there's meant to be, I think, a reality that this is conveying. This isn't just meant to be, you know, a tradition, but something you're understanding about the reality of your relationship with God. God who is not like man And how do I handle my closeness with God, right? So this water was so that if somebody touched a dead body, which this in the wilderness would be happening all the time, that although people would be unclean, God had provided a way for them to come back, right? The way that I think about this is like, so, okay, I used to work at UPS and for a long time I used UPS and my experience there as an illustration for sermons all the time. I've tried to slow down on that. But this lesson, there's just really helpful illustrations from my experience there. So at UPS, when I was in management, right, you're handling, um, it's a package company, right? You're handling boxes, things break. So sometimes in the job, you're handling a package and it breaks and things spill out of it that get on you. And sometimes it's things that are harmful, like to your health, to your skin, chemicals that you don't want on your skin, So out of necessity, you've got to step away from the job. You can no longer continue your work as normal because now you're contaminated by something. doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. doesn't mean that. But you need to come back. (laughs) You can't just say like, okay, I'm done. And it's like, well, where did they go? They were just supposed to wash and get back to work, right? So there are things that this would teach Israel both about God's character and it wasn't wrong for them to be unclean, but it could become wrong. It wasn't a sin for them to touch a dead body and deal with it. It wasn't. In fact, it was a good thing. It was a necessity. But with God, there's something about that that was in some, you know, again, illustrative way contaminating. And God was providing them a means to come back. And if they weren't interested in what God provided, 
and the means that they were to cleanse themselves, they're cut off. Because clearly, they don't value having fellowship with God and being among his people. They don't belong in his nation. And so dwelling with God is a privilege, but there are things that hurt that privilege, but God is always providing what takes care of that. So how does this happen? Well, so here's how this water is made. In verse 2, the congregation needs to provide something pretty unique in terms of an animal that's sacrificed. It's a red heifer. So like, usually it's a bull, a male cow that's sacrificed. Here it's a young female cow, and it's specifically red. For whatever it's worth, you see like, you see red with things that seem to have relation to each other. Um, Jacob was red all over, and Esau was red all over. Jacob took his birthright. Uh, Esau sold his birthright for red stew. So there's kind of like an exchange there. One is lost and the other gains the favor. Um, you remember Rahab, it's a scarlet thread. She ties it in her window. Jericho is destroyed, but Rahab escapes. Uh, Perez and Zerah, Zerah has a red thing tied onto his wrist or leg. He's drawn back, and then um, Perez comes out, who's an ancestor of Jesus. You know. So you see a lot of these things where there's like, something has to be exchanged for you to live. For you to gain God's favor, for you to get what you're getting, something has to die. Something has to be pushed back or brought down in order for you to be put forward. And so you've got a red heifer, and this is slaughtered outside the camp in the presence of a priest. So you see that in verse 3. And then what happens is ashes are made by burning this animal after the priest sprinkled its blood seven times towards the tabernacle. I think this was from a distance outside the camp. Just kind of showing like this is all about the tabernacle. This isn't someone being an island if they're outside of the camp, but they have to understand even from a distance, they're impacting the tabernacle, their relationship they need to come back because that's where God's people are centered. That's where their life is centered. So after this, the ashes are being made as then the priest puts in cedar wood. You see this in verse 6, cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet hyssop was used to splatter blood on the um, doorposts in the Passover. Um, Jesus on hyssop was given, I think, like the sour wine. So hyssop is put in and then scarlet thread, another red thing, and it's cast into the midst of the burning heifer. And all of this, don't miss this, is to make ashes. So the ashes of this sacrifice are then kept, gathered, and preserved. And it turns into something like instant coffee. So with instant coffee, you've got like these very, you know, little tiny grounds. Just add water and then it becomes the coffee. And these ashes, the point of all this is you add water and you sprinkle that on the unclean person, right? So the ashes are going to be coupled with water. So water is added to the ashes, and it's sprinkled with hyssop on the unclean person. Um, so you see that later in the text, that um, in verse 18, a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent, on all the furnishings. That's if someone died inside of a tent. And on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or, or the slain person, the one dying naturally or the grave. I think one, one of the principles here is God takes death seriously. God takes contact with death seriously. God is a living God. And so again, in some physically tangible way to illustrate the point that 
God has fellowship with the living. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It's serious to God if you come into contact with the dead. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong, but it means you need to do something that is going to inconvenience you now. So seven days, you can't go to work. You can't do your normal life anymore. Your relationships change for seven days. And you've got to have this water with these ashes, which seems kind of nasty, sprinkled on your body on the third and seventh day. And you could think, how ridiculous. I mean, what is this, what is this matter? And we're going to talk more about that, that what matters is God's holiness. And that him being holy, he gets to decide the terms for approaching him and having fellowship with him. So just a few lessons really quick. Everyone involved in this process becomes unclean. The priest who has this all burned, he becomes unclean. The person who's assisting the priest, the second person, that's in verse 8, that person becomes unclean. Uh, There's a third person who deals with gathering the ashes, that person becomes unclean. And then in verse, let's see, I think it's on my second page here. Yeah, verse 21 Uh, He who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean. So really, out of necessity, at least four people are becoming unclean by involving themselves in this process. Again, now them becoming unclean is very inconvenient, but are they doing anything wrong? I would actually argue they're becoming unclean by doing something good and righteous. That actually out of necessity of obedience to serve people for God, out of necessity... A priest, even, is becoming unclean. And he has to. This is what's required to purify people so that they can approach God. So I think there's an important point in this. When we're serving people spiritually, does that feel heroic? Does that just become this very joyful thing that gives you a skip in your step and makes you feel good about yourself? No, oftentimes when you're serving people for God specifically, not just socially, but I'm trying to help you become more holy. I'm trying to help you overcome things that are restricting your relationship with God. How's that going to feel to serve that person? It might feel like dying. And it may be something that requires inconvenience and may mean that there's extra burdens that I've got to take on. But that's, that's just a part of the process, right? So in order to do this, multiple people were going to have to be willing to become unclean for the sake of the person outside the camp. By the way, do you think that would help the priests have compassion on the unclean people outside the camp and not forget about them? Not just get so busy with what's going on in the city that the lepers, the people touching dead bodies, all that stuff, just, well, I, I don't know. They're just out there. I don't, I don't bother myself with those people. I don't want to contaminate myself. That's, that's not the role of the priest. The role of the priest was to get their hands dirty and go out there to those people. And if you think about it in that way, do you think there's some Christ-like lessons in this about John the Baptist going out into the wilderness or about Jesus going to the people who had the heavier burdens where he had to really inconvenience himself? I think we see some lessons in that. And I think, again, we can't have fellowship with God in our terms. You could think, well, I'll just purify myself on the seventh day. Or you could think the priest is like, you know, this whole like magic stuff with the hyssop, the scarlet, the cedarwood. Is this like a magic spell? Who cares? So just the heifer, the cedarwood, forget about the hyssop and the scarlet material. I don't, I don't get it. It's not going to work. 
Because this isn't about, it's, it's not a magic trick, right? The fact that, it's, that God has defined a method and all components become necessary. And I think it's important to think about that with things like salvation. Do we get to modify terms of salvation just because, well, I, I don't get that part. Or I don't understand how that fits in. Or, you know, baptism. I don't get how being dunked in water just somehow magically erases my sins. That's not the point, right? The point is that there's a purpose for things that God says are necessary. And I'm the stupid one who doesn't get it. And over time, maybe the purpose might become more clear. But I just have to trust that when God says this is necessary to have fellowship with him, that's it. Because God has the authority to define the terms. And the Levites, already in Numbers, there were Levites that were guards for the tabernacle. So you can't just jump the fence to the tabernacle, right? They would guard it to make sure that if you're coming into God's presence that closely, that you are properly purified to be close with God, right? And finally, God trains us to treat our relationship to his holiness as real. You know, so touching a dead body does not seemingly affect my relationship to anybody. But for a Jew in the law of Moses, would it? All sorts of things would. And they would, again, have to inconvenience themselves to obey these laws that seem to have no tangible effect on my relationship with others. And the reality is there are things that God requires that really are more rooted in our singular respect for him, even if it doesn't seem to have any relationship to anyone else around us. Things that might even feel better, right? There might be ways we can worship that feel more satisfying and don't seem to hurt anybody. There might be sins that we can justify committing because I don't just see how this hurts anybody. But with God, God was training Israel, no, no, it does. Your, your relationship to God's holy commandments that only deal with him, they do deal with your relationship with others. So if they would not do this, they would defile the tabernacle and they would be cut off from Israel. And so this isn't just imaginary rituals. There's a realistic, tangible lesson that God is trying to train his people to understand about the importance of being holy. So there's that. Let's look at chapter 20 in the water from the rock. So just to kind of put this out there, in verse um, 14 through 22, there's a narrative that Israel is going to pass by Edom. Edom does not let them pass through and they threaten them with violence so they have to go a longer way. There's some points there in that, but for the sake of time, I'm really just going to be focusing on Moses and the water here for this lesson. Um, So we're, we're going to kind of be skipping over the part where they go by Edom. But again, chapter 33, verse 38, let's let's turn there just so I can show you this. This is a really helpful time marker. Um, You look at verse 38. This is a chapter reviewing Israel's journeys through the wilderness, place by place. It says, Then Aaron the priest went up on Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year, after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And you notice back in chapter 20, Um, verse 1, it's the first month. So it seems like this is a five-month period from the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter. So again, we've skipped forward an extraordinary amount of time. We're in the 40th year year now. It's likely that most of the generation had passed away that um, came out of Egypt originally, um, that did not enter the promised land. The last bit of that generation is going to die because of the sin at Peor with Balaam in chapter 25, then the census for the new generation will be in chapter 26. So suffice it to say, 
Let's reread this account up to verse 9 and then just kind of work through it. Uh, Chapter 21 through 9. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam, that's the sister of Moses, Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then even brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the, assemb- from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. All right. Everything's going well, at least Moses and Aaron so far. But what I want to point out is this has happened before. And Moses is about to get very frustrated. And I'd like to introduce some things that I think may help us understand his frustration. 40th year. When Israel came out of Egypt before they reached Sinai in Exodus chapter 17, they complained that they didn't have water. And God told Moses, go hit the rock with your staff. It'll yield its water. It did. What happened to that congregation who complained all the time? Once they got... Yeah, they, they died in the wilderness. They wouldn't go in. So you imagine, okay, you guys have been learning from God for 40 years. This has all happened before. We've been through this. God has provided for you. You've seen it. You understand it. You imagine how it seemed like oh, we're wasting our time. You know, the, 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 the nature of that first generation, oh, it's like we're back to square one again. It's like it's, it's the same complaint here. But notice, God is handling it differently. I think with striking the rock, there's an idea of, of wrath. Is that same idea of wrath conveyed in just speaking to the rock? You know, it seems like there is a gentleness and a graciousness demonstrated in that. And I think it would be very, very important for that graciousness and gentleness to be conveyed in this context. And interestingly, he tells him to speak to the rock, but verse 8, what's the first thing he says? Remember, he hit the rock before. He says, take the rod. You notice in verse 9, so Moses took the rod. So do you think God understands where Moses is, the potential danger of the situation? just want to put this forward before we read further. Um, just realize I'm a little behind in my slide. God is going to speak about this in relation to his holiness. And I think what we understand in this is holiness involves self-control. Moses had the staff. He had hit the rock before. He's very tense. We're going to see that. But we're not going to see it excuse his anger and his actions before the Lord, right? Because to be holy involves self-control, right? So let's continue reading verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. He said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand 
and struck the rock twice. Now I want you to see this is like slow motion. You know, Moses lifted up his hand and then he struck the rock. I don't know how much time passed, but the way that I personally imagine this is he struck it, silence. And then in the rage of the moment, and he strikes it again and then and it just starts gushing. So verse 11 again, and water came forth abundantly. So imagine it starts gushing. The congregation and their beast drank. There we go. No problem. And I mean, can't you understand Moses' frustration, right? And I mean, he just hit a rock. You know, no big deal. And I mean, yeah, he's frustrated. He's angry. Like, give the guy a break, right? Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Psalm 106 verse 38 um, makes this really clear. And when this is reflected on, it's always looked at compassionately that Moses was pushed to the breaking point. But Psalm 106, yeah, verse 32 and 33, says, so they provoked him, that is God, to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. So, when Moses rebukes Mo- when God rebukes Moses for speaking rashly, is it about the staff or the rock? And I bring this up because in the New Testament, for instance, right, we're told to sing in melody, in praise to God, and make melody with the instrument of our heart. And a lot of times when people visit, they notice like we're singing with our voices, like there's no um, like drum set up here, we're not playing on the piano, we're just singing with our voices. And there's a reason, there's a biblical reason for that, why we do that. And in the Old Testament period of time, God explicitly commanded instruments to be used. Flute, harp, lyre, things like that. He explicitly commanded them. So think about this. Moses hit the rock the first time. So why is it not okay the second time? Even if it's a similar context for the same result, God spoke differently in this context, right? God is capable of communicating what we should do for worship, right? And so if God communicates something different, where do we look then for what we should do? To the first time it was something similar was commanded or to what's more relevant, the present context? And so again, someone could, you know, I've talked to people about these things and they'll say, so you're saying I'm going to hell for like plucking the strings of a guitar. You've got to be kidding me. Well, think about this. Can you imagine Moses being like, so you're saying I can't go into Canaan because I hit a rock? Are you kidding me? It's not about the rock. It's not about the staff. It's about God's holiness. And when God speaks, that is a holy thing. That is a serious thing. And so for Moses to treat God's word so lightly in, the, in front of the congregation, that is a serious thing that impacts the congregation's understanding of God's nature and the seriousness of his word. So it's not about the staff. It's not about the stone. It's about the fact that God's character is a character of holiness, and we are responsible to respect his holiness. So, and think about what Moses said. And I want you to remember in chapter 12, 
It said that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. Imagine the horror when God deals with Moses' words and brings reflection. In verse, um, verse 8. Well, I'm sorry, verse, verse 10. I lost my place there. Verse 10. Listen now, you rebels. So first of all, was God calling the people rebels here? Again, with the speaking of the rock, does it sound like God was in a state of incredible wrath and ready to destroy the people? So Moses is saying, listen now, you rebels, shall we? Again, think about this from Moses' perspective when God deals with what he said. <laughs> Who's the we? We? Bring forth water from the rock? There, there is no we. Humility is in horror at the thought of putting self in front of God. Humility is, is horrified by the thought. You remember in 1 Corinthians 2, the Corinthians were a very arrogant group of new Christians struggling a lot with pride. And Paul says in reference to his conduct, I was among you with fear and trembling so that your faith would not be in men, but in the cross, right? And he determined to know nothing among them but Christ and him crucified. So Paul to the Corinthians saying, this, this arrogant way that you're behaving and thinking is so distant from God. I was among you with fear and with trembling, only trying to exalt Jesus because humility is horrified at the thought of being exalted without God. I don't think there was anything more convicting that could have happened here or that God could have said in response. And I want you to think about this too. So I'm going to use another UPS illustration. What if God didn't deal with Moses' sin? What if he didn't? When I was working in management at UPS, there was an older gentleman who also worked in management. And it was like supervisor level. So there's like managers, managers, managers. There's like 10 levels of managers. So I was like on the lowest level. But it's a pretty good job. If you've been with the company for like 30 years, like that ends up becoming like you receive a full-time wage from this lower end supervisor management position. Well, there was someone in Minnesota, huge facility. Minnesota where I worked was... It was, it was just very massive. It was just one of the biggest UPS facilities in that region of the nation. So they're monitored very closely by higher management, very frequently. And one of the higher managers had his office in that building, which, which is rare. But one of my fellow supervisors had been with the company for a long time and used that to his advantage. With people's packages, he would step on them, he would climb on them, he would throw them. He really didn't follow any of the company's procedures. And you'd see him in the upper manager's offices having buddy-buddy talk and friendly talk with them. You'd see the upper managers walking right by him as he's doing these things. Just totally overlook it. You know what that did to everybody else? It's all a big joke. You know, these rules that they're, you know, trying to pretend like they're so strict about? There's this guy right over here not doing any of this. And since he's, you know, more of a legacy position, he's been at the company for a long time and clearly close to the upper management... Now that matters a lot more, right? So the influence of his neglect and the fact that that was being overlooked, it changed the entire environment. And if they would, if they would have worked on correcting his behavior, that would have changed the entire company in that building. So because it was being overlooked, this one legacy employee being allowed to do whatever he wanted, everything looked like a joke because of that. And it wasn't, it wasn't taken seriously. People around him would do the same things he would do, and what could the upper management say? They're overlooking it with the legacy employee. So 
Aaron is held accountable for this as well. He dies first. 23 through 29. When they arrive at Mount Hor, as it was reflected on Numbers 33, Aaron dies in verse 24, and he's held responsible for this. Look at the end of the verse. Because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. I don't remember reading where Aaron did anything. But I want you to look at this. Verse 6. Moses and who came in? And then you notice if Aaron was there, verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. So you imagine the reflection now, right? Okay. Aaron sees he's going to die because of his rebellion. Moses is not going to allow, be allowed in the promised land. He's going to die. What do you think Aaron, looking back, what do you think he would have done differently? Tackle him? Grab his arm and say, no, no, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop! Anything, right? By doing nothing, Aaron became complicit. He became a participant, right? Look, there are things that are difficult to correct, because the reality is, and this is, it's not a bad thing, it's, it's just, it's difficult to balance. We're compassionate with each other, right? We all get frustrated, and I think anger is something we all relate to each other on, like, oh, that made me angry, I hated, you know, this, this, and this. But does it matter if God is trying to convey gentleness for us to instead be harsh and cruel? This is why I think it's so important to have a personal investment in the word because there are things that will be exposed in our own personal investment that simply because I'm weak, I'm not going to handle things the right way. It's going to be really awkward to point something out. Look, none of us are going to correct perfectly, not one. And so if we don't have an established and personal investment in God's word, there's going to be all sorts of things we're just not going to be convicted about, we're not going to reflect on, we're just not going to care about it. And it's not until we begin digging in, right? And so, by the way, Moses spent the rest of his life relentlessly serving and encouraging the nation. And I think this is another aspect of Moses' investment in his relationship with God. That ultimately Moses' hope for motivation wasn't the land itself. It was God himself, right? So even if he loses his place in the land, all that mattered about the land is the Lord is there with his people. And does Moses have a working and eternal relationship with God? Yes, right? But wouldn't you understand if Moses after this said, what have I been wasting my time doing? You know, 40 years I've been in this nation bearing with this and God, one slip up? Are you kidding me? How many times has this congregation rebelled against you and they get to go in? This is so unfair. And so you can imagine, if we read it that way, it's like, yeah, of course. I mean, man, Moses has been sacrificing and suffering for so long. Why wouldn't he be demotivated? But you know, that's not what we read. Moses continues to serve the nation through the book of Numbers and the entire book of Deuteronomy. And it is just a relentless, selfless example of encouraging the people the people who cost him his place in Canaan, right? So Moses will reflect, and the psalmist reflected, yeah, the congregation pushed him, pushed him past his limit. That there's a sense where, yes, Moses is responsible, God holds him responsible, but yes, it was the congregation, 
right? They did make it hard on Moses. They did push him over the edge. The very people, Moses said, I'm done. I hate you people. I'm done. He continues to serve. That, that is good leadership. That is godly leadership, right? One final illustration for the lesson is during COVID, I would hear horror stories about elders. The congregation didn't handle COVID the way they wanted, and early on, gone. Congregation doesn't do what the elders said, boom, done, going to a different congregation. Is that the kind of example we see even in Moses? It's not godly leadership. We need to be committed to God's people. Yes, it's hard. Yes, our hearts are tested. Yes, there's opportunity for friction very frequently as we involve ourselves with each other. Is that a good thing? Is that a blessing? Only if we're looking to God. Only if we're anchored in the cross. That'll be the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and you have not surrendered yourself to the gospel, to Christ, the invitation remains open every day. And we have a period at the end of our assembly here as an invitation where if you are convicted by God's word, if there's something that needs to be brought before the church, we reserve this time for those things to be brought forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.